And welcome to another exciting episode of Battle of the Atom. This is the weekly podcast where I, Zach Jenkins, and my co-host Adam Reck go through three X-Men stories and we find the spot for them between the best X-Men stories, the worst X-Men stories, and everything in between as we rank just everything. <laughs> Adam, how you doing today? I am good. We have some really like crazy interesting stories to talk about today. So I'm excited to uh, to break each one down. Well, before we jump into these stories, I've got to ask you, because this is very pertinent to the pop star lifestyle of <laughs> 2001 that we will be spending an odd amount of time with. Yeah. Adam, you were probably the right age to think that like boy bands and Britney Spears were just the worst thing, right? Like- I- Right about that time. I mean, I was, uh, I guess I was getting started in college when the, you know, that pop thing kind of blew up and it was a weird contrast because like we had just been living with years and years of grunge and, uh, you know, second and third and fourth generation grunge acts. So it was, it was a weird shift in music. Um, I remember the Spice Girls being kind of fun. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of boy bands and a lot of uh, a lot of pop stars blowing up in the early 2000s. Yeah, I definitely had two Backstreet Boys albums and they I think I still have them somewhere in my CD collection where I keep all of my CDs, which I assume is a landfill somewhere. I know they're in a box, Uh, but I will not judge. They were they were a point of shame. Oh, no, (sighs) don't be too ashamed. I mean, the, the thing is, like. These are catchy songs, so, you know, be here's, here's enjoy what you enjoy. Here's the thing, Adam. I'm not even sure I ever enjoyed it because I was nine when Backstreet Boys Millennium came out, and I still <laughs> wasn't sure what good music was yet. Yeah. Like, okay. the only other music I had heard is my dad playing Duncan Sheik uh, <laughs> on his car stereo, which That's I thought that was neat. I just didn't know, you know, what Barely Breathing was. That's a bit of a contrast there. Um, well, and you weren't alone. Well, Duncan Sheik's much better than Backstreet Boys. Let's be clear. Sure. Um, but you weren't alone. Like, I mean, I remember working at a Barnes and Noble around the time that the Backstreet Boys Millennium came out and like everybody bought a copy. That was like one of the best selling albums of all time. So everybody has a copy of that album floating around somewhere. And if I'm not mistaken, the Backstreet Boys actually just released a pretty like serviceable single within the last week that I thought was not bad. So, you know, they're still around, they're kicking it, but this is applicable because, um, this is actually going to be in our first arc here, right? Not Backstreet Boys, but yeah. uh, Britney Spears uh, lookalike. Lookalike's a strong, strong word. This is one for one Britney Spears. Mm-hmm. Uh, her name is Sugar Kane, and she is one of the stars of the story Poptopia. But do you know why we are talking about Poptopia? Well, I'm assuming it's a request. So who requested Poptopia? Poptopia was requested by Patreon supporter Gabe Fabricant. Hmm. He went on over to patreon.com slash Xavier Files and pitched in his support for the show. So we, in his honor, 
crafting an entire episode around this suggestion of Apoptopia. And this is an interesting period of X-Men, to say the least. My goodness, what is going on in these issues? <laughs> yeah. So this is the start of the Joe Casey era. He had done one a one shot before this. Now, for context, this is going on hand in hand with Morrison's is for extinction. This is the uncanny that was the you know partner book to New X Men at the time, and wow, is there a contrast in oh like my goodness, yeah, a lot. And this is the story that happens immediately after Eve of Destruction. So really big yep. shift from one to the other, too, because this story, if you boil it down, is a four issues about Chamber dating Britney Spears and some of yep. the other X-Men basically flying to London to try and talk him out of it. Meanwhile, there's a guy named Mr. Clean walking around with a flamethrower burning up British Morlocks. Um, wow. What a contrast. <laughs> yeah, this is this is quite, quite the story. Uh, it was penciled by Ian Churchill for uh, two and a half or two issues. Sean Phillips and Mel Ruby split duties on the third issue of this. And then Sean Phillips and Ashley Wood from Metal Gear Solid comics fame uh, does the last issue. And wow, uh, the the fact that the art is so constantly changing in this does not do the story any favors well the story doesn't do itself any favors either i mean <laughs> i i think there's a basic logic problem here like if you wanted to tell a couple of issues about chamber dating britney spears and kind of coming up to some realization that she's using him for exposure purposes okay I, I guess that could be an interesting story. In this case, it's not particularly all that interesting. But why are the X-Men so alarmed by this that they need to like fly over to London to stop it? That's the part that baffles me. And it, when they come to, to actually shut it down, they're like destroying the apartment. <laughs> There's a great time there's a great moment where Iceman kicks over a, a table in the apartment to tell him that he we're going to teach you about self-acceptance and it's like what what is going on in this story yeah it's the way this story handles so much about the x-men is just odd. i mean even this team is weird so mm -hmm. like the team composition at this time morrison got first pick of x-men characters yep he was he was their guy so whoever he wanted on the team he got uh, I believe, I believe Joe, Joe, uh, Casey got the, uh, got the second pick. So, and then, uh, Chris Claremont in extreme X-Men got the leftovers. I I'm still trying to figure out how Joe Casey with his second pick in the X-Men draft chooses Archangel, Chamber, Iceman, and Nightcrawler to be his team. <laughs> yeah. And Wolverine, of all the yeah, which is also weird because, you know, if uh, Morrison got first pick, why did Wolverine get to appear in this book, too? But you're right. He picks a, an all male. He ends up appearing in uh, Extreme, too. Yeah. And, you know, for a good chunk. He's in all three books for a while. I, I guess that shouldn't surprise us. I mean, Wolverine is ubiquitous all, at all times. But yeah, I mean, I can get behind a Nightcrawler led X team. I think that's a fun idea. But 
especially the versions of Angel and Iceman here are terrible takes. Like Angel is rocking this uh, crew cut and goatee kind of look that makes him kind of look like blue Kanye uh, in 2018. And, and Bobby, Bobby is wearing at least for the first two issues, a button down shirt with feathers on it or something like just the costuming alone is so strange. And I understand like here we're in reboot land and we're, you know, we're trying to do cool new things with the book, but it is amazing. The contrast between what Morrison and quietly are doing in new X-Men and what's happening here. This is, this is not successful. No, it, it it really isn't. I remember liking this the first time I read it and going back for this episode and reading it. I was very confused with myself and my choices. Mm. I yeah. I don't know. Some of the covers are good, though. Like, sure. Actually, I think three out of the four covers are excellent. Uh, and then the cover for number four leaves much to be desired. Well, and I like the basic premise of, you know, uh, one of the team members getting involved with a pop star and what that means, you know, like tabloid exposure, um, you know, maybe they could be on MTV or something like that by accident. And then what are the effects? But the way it's handled, it doesn't really do much. And then the B plot is basically about this guy, Mr. Clean walking around with a flamethrower. And it's just, it's a stupid, stupid villain that you, you would never in a million years think could go toe to toe with the X-Men and yet manages to, do pretty well in a fight with them. It doesn't really work very well. Yeah. Him and the whole Morlock subplot, subplot, and they're not, you know, Morlocks. They are London tunnel dwellers. Right. <laughs> but they're Morlocks. That feels like it was put in here because editorial looked at this pitch and said, it's good, but this is a superhero comic, Joe. So we do need someone to be stabbed. <laughs> an angel does get stabbed though he recovers very quickly from that um i i just thought you know of all the new ingenious things that you could be doing sending this guy into tunnels with a flamethrower doesn't seem to be the most ingenious thing yeah it's it's odd so at this time you know morrison's big manifesto was saying hey fine we've done mutants being hated and feared for you know 40 years at this point how about we flip the script just a bit? How about, yeah, they're still hated and feared by some, but they're a subculture to be admired by a lot of others, especially young people, which is, you know, something you see as generations change, what has been, you know, was absolutely hated years, you know, just a few years back is completely accepted and turned into, you know, a big thing. And not to say that those groups don't still have problems or challenges or anything like that. But like you can see uh, like attitor- attitudes towards the LGBTQ community uh, nowadays compared to where they were like 10 years ago, it is night and day. And it's not to say that there's not problems around, but that was the same kind of, you know, kind of pitch kind of feel that Morrison was trying to get saying, you know, cultures and attitudes change. So let's play with that. And as successful as he is in New X-Men, Joe Casey is completely unsuccessful here because it feels so surface level of, I guess mutants are cool now. So this one's going to date Britney Spears. Yeah. There's a lot to mine here. Um, you know, if that is the basic premise that we're going to go on, um, 
you know, you could have like get out levels of interest with that story, but in an end, like there's a, there's a scene with um, sugarcane, the Britney Spears analog and chamber where they're having a conversation about, you know, the basic themes of this story. And she tries to draw a parallel between their relationship and the, and the tabloid exposure and the mutant metaphor. And she's, I think the page concludes with a, a, a question like kind of makes you rethink the whole mutant thing, doesn't it? And I read that page and I go, no, it doesn't like it, it's not an analogous situation. So it doesn't make sense. That argument doesn't actually uh, make me think any more about the mutant metaphor or doesn't make me think about it in a new way. Um, so pair that with some very interesting art, some kind of, takes on the characters that I don't particularly enjoy. Um, like this doesn't seem to be the chamber that I know and love from generation X even. And uh, I, I'm no. not really loving, I'm not loving this. No, this is not a strong story at all. Uh, it, it's something that you run into with Joe Casey's short run on uncanny X-Men pretty much the entire way through. It's filled with very interesting ideas and like just, if you were in a pitch meeting, all this sounds like new and exciting ways to take the X-Men. But in execution, it falls apart. Part of that is on the writing. Uh, part of that in this and in a few later stories he does is with the art. Ashley Wood, who whose kind of painterly style really works for stuff like the Metal Gear Solid comic, does not work at all uh, for the back half of this book. Hmm. Yeah, I, I kind of like the Sean Phillips stuff the most. I mean, we, we've Sean Phillips said is on really the show good. a couple of times that we, we think he's very talented. Um, so I think that's where this hits its height. But especially um, the, the Churchill stuff, to me, uh, I, I just can't get behind it. You know, there's a lot of detail in the artwork. I, I give him props for that, but it's just not for me. No, no. Where are you? Where are you thinking as far as the ranking on this goes? Because uh, right now we have a hundred and eight, and I can't believe it. Stories on this list. Uh, the number one is Days of Future Past. The number one hundred and eight is the Draco. Poptopia <laughs> is better than the Draco. Worse than Days of Future Past, for sure. I am looking right around a story that I think has a similar idea um, in terms of mutants and media culture, which was Extreme X-Men Expose as kind of a starting point. Um, but I think it's probably worse than a couple of the stories that are below that on our list. Yeah, I think Expose is better. I really do. Mm -hmm. Uh yeah. I think stairs is better. I think that ultimate X-Men story with Mr. Sinister is probably a more enjoyable read. Yeah, I'm, I think I'm going a little bit lower than that. Then, um, and now I'm looking at 97 follow the mutants, new mutants, uh, Doug's death. Ooh. Um, how that, low that is a comic go? with bird brain in it and bird brains bad. Yeah, that's also a that? comic. That's also a comic with what uh, Louise Simonson writing and Brett Blevins doing art. Yeah, really good stuff there. And I would much rather <sighs> read the New Mutant Summer Special than I would this. Um, I, think I don't this think I'm ever going to revisit Poptopia. I think this is probably better than Heroes for Hope, though. It's definitely better yeah. than the Mangaverse story. 
All right. Well, then that would make it our new 98. Um, and I think that's probably a good place for it. I think that is the correct place. In fact, I know it's the correct place because that's where it's going. The new number 98 <laughs> on our list. Uncanny X-Men Apoptopia. Nice. Um, the next story on our list. We're, we're What we've done for this episode, we've taken Poptopia into its core two parts. This story about mutants in pop culture and the next generation of things. And this weird Morlock subplot. And we've just kind of branched mm-hmm. our episode out into something that touches on both. Uh, so we're going to start with Morlocks, which was a four-issue miniseries but with uh, art by Sean Martinsboro and ri- writings, words, as some people call them, by <laughs> Jeff Johns. You, you know Jeff yeah. Johns. Uh, the of DC fan. The giant DC comics man, Jeff Johns. Uh, can I tell you, I loved this. This story's good, right? <laughs> Holy mackerel. This is so good. Um, I All right. We got to get into a little bit about this because people might not have ever seen this, heard oh, this, of this read is, it. It's a, you you like it too, right? Uh, this is – look, here, guys, here's the pitch. This is The Gifted. This is four I issues was gonna of say, The Gifted. The people who, who write The Gifted must like use this as their Bible because like this is the pitch for the show, essentially. It's so good. Uh, and I like The Gifted. Yeah, I, I don't love The Gifted as much as others, but I can appreciate it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, even from the surface level stuff like Shatter from The Gifted, who is just such a good design for a character, mm-hmm. uh, is in this four issue series. This is about a group of Morlocks, but not the New York City Morlocks. These guys are from Chicago uh, and they live underground and have to have to deal with not really wanting to change the world, not really wanting to do anything, but kind of wanting to just survive and, you know, keep moving. Well, and the the central pitch is that and I, I don't know if this is this is something I was a little unclear about because this feels a little bit. um like it's not 616. No, it is. Do, it do is. you get a kind of, I, I know it's set in the 616, but it, it just seems like there's like a heightened level of Sentinel activity. Um, because if they're above ground for a certain amount of time, they know that the Sentinels and, or the Chicago police are going to kill them essentially. Right. So we have these dueling levels of either police brutality or complete, totalitarianism that are going to destroy them. So they have to remain underground. But I like the central premise of this is that they're a team because they all have these like last wishes that they want to complete before, you know, they are probably going to bite it. And so they are helping each other, not necessarily because they're like a family unit or anything like that, but that they're going to help each other fulfill those last wishes that range from get my dog out of the pound to like take revenge on a drug dealer. I I like that as a setup. Yeah, it works really well for this story because John's who I'm, I'm not a huge DC guy, so I'm actually not very well versed in Jeff John's work. But Johns tells very good character-centric stories here where these you know handful – I think there's only seven guys or seven characters in this whole series. Uh, they all feel like good developed characters that by the end of issue four, I want to see more of. Like I wish they would have popped up somewhere. I know a couple of them – like I know Litterbug showed up in a couple of issues of something else later just as a uh, 
as you know, wallpaper, more or less. Well, and that's a darn shame. I, I was doing the same thing after I read this and double checking. I think Shatter has made a, a few back, you know, background appearances in places, but these are really well developed characters. I think the leader of them is this guy named mm -hmm. the Postman who has such a cool power. Um, he essentially can tell you something and then you forget that thing. So in the very first issue, he, he tells a police officer to forget gun and the police officer no longer knows what a gun is. I, I just think that as a premise is such a, a smart, brilliant idea for a superpower. And uh, you mentioned Litterbug. Litterbug is what? Like a, he's like a giant cockroach? Yep. Essentially, he's like an army guy that's like turned into this giant cockroach. They're just really fun character designs. Yeah. And a lot of that, Sean Martinsboro, uh, he is doing a ton of work on this that is absolutely killing it. His art is very stylistic. It uses, you know, that Mike Mignola heavy use of shadow, which is very appropriate for this book. It's great. It feels off of house style just enough to be like a unique memorable chunk of comic and that combined with a unique cast and a pitch that you don't get from x-men all that often it really works also yeah it's also a very diverse cast um you have uh characters of color one of the intro is um you know one of the introductions is that there's a m uh what is it? M13, uh, the gang member who be literally becomes like a giant cell of blob kind of guy, oh, yeah, cell. Um, you know, but, but you have women on this team, you have uh, members of the team who are people of color. I just think that like, this is a really solid lineup that I'm shocked has not been revisited by anybody else. Cause it's a good team. Um, this, to me could be its own book. And I, I would be interested in reading more stories about these guys. Absolutely. This whole like 2002 to 2004 after Morrison showed, Hey, we can do some different stuff with X-Men. There is a handful of books like the chamber uh, icon miniseries, uh, the second volume of X factor. Uh, ooh, what's it called? Uh, muties. Uh, in this, mm -hmm. uh, there's a handful of books that are just, trying to explore the corners of the X universe that don't normally get seen. And it's very, very good. It does a great job fleshing out this new world that Grant Morrison kind of set up with his big pitch. And what I think the biggest casualty of M day was, was the fact that that world got shrunk so much just as it was realizing it's, what I think was realizing its potential. Now I know the flip side of that is mm -hmm. none of those books sold anything. So maybe people just want Wolverine and Wolverine alone, but <laughs> I've read a lot of Wolverine stories. I've never read the, this story and I want to read more of this story. And this avoids some of the, you know, X-Men tropes that, um, you know, I think we've talked about as being very repetitive. There's no, you know, issue where they have to form the team. There's no issue where you have to get the backstory of the villain or anything like that. It's not tied into the rest of the X universe. They're just off and running from page one. And, it, you know, what they're doing gets developed as they do it. It's a real show don't tell type of scenario, um, even down to 
the Sentinels um, who are being commanded by this very perverse general who seems to be getting off literally um, from video footage of mutants being uh, eliminated. It's, you know, it's heavy. It's got a dark feel to it. It feels kind of indie and uh, it's great. I think it's a really nice book. I do too. Uh, where would you like to rank this on our big old list? I think it's going to go higher than most people would expect. Well, you know, one of the things that I really like about The Gifted is that it really does give us a solid premise to go along with the mutant metaphor. Like the first story we were just talking about doesn't really nail that. This does. Um, The art's beautiful. The writing is really solid. The characters are great. So I I don't mind putting it high. Um, I am, I don't know. I'm kind of looking in the, in the 20s maybe. Here's a story I'm going to throw out. Do you think it's better than Daddy Cable, that uh, second arc with the president of the United States? Okay, so Cable and Hope. That's at 32 right now. Yeah, I I think this. Oh, that's a tough one. That is a really cool story, though, you know, with cockroaches taking over the earth. Um, I maybe like this more, though. I don't know. I think that the art is a little more consistent i do i think that it is just a great pitch in and of itself i want to see these characters again i want to read more about them um is it better than giant size x-men i don't think this is better than astonishing x-men dangerous uh which i think we just covered two weeks ago yeah which is in at um and that's at number 24 right now I wasn't going to go that high. We have magic below that. Below that, we have uh, what if Wolverine was Lord of the Vampires. I'm I think this is better than the what if story. Um, what, do, what do you think? I know I like it better than X-Men 92, number one through four. The world is a vampire. OK, I'm I think it's definitely not as good as magic. I am stuck on what if Wolverine was Lord of the Vampires. <laughs> I think objectively this is better, but I think I like what if Wolverine was Lord of the Vampires more. OK, well, we can be subjective here. Um, yeah, nah, it's the correct answer is to put it as our new number 26. OK, All I right. think I, I think I need to listen to my head, not my heart here. Uh, so yeah, Jeff Johns, Jeff Johns really, uh, you know, making his mark on X-Men and then never again with, uh, number 26 Morlocks. Good show. And that brings us, yeah, that brings us to our last story. And this, uh, takes the, you know, new start, different pitch for the X-Men side of Poptopia and just runs with it a way better. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Much different. Um, we are talking about the first arc of X statics within X Force. So this is one sixteen to one nineteen. And yeah. I got a question for you, Zach. How the yeah. hell did this ever get published? <laughs> because, and you can see it on the cover of number one sixteen. This is the first comic that Marvel published in the current era without the comics code. Right. Yeah. This was the. And they went of, hard the in. Yeah. <laughs> they had done a couple of one offs. Uh, they did that Spider Man drugs story back in like the 70s or 80s. But this was the death of the comics code. Yep. And wow, do Peter Milligan and Mike Allred just go buck wild with that. Um, 
Yeah. So not only do we completely abandon the New Mutants era X-Force team. Which I'm just going to say, I just read the Counter X uh, era, the last uh, run of traditional X-Force. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's okay that we let them go. You know that <laughs> Boom Boom was dressed like Mr. Sinister for most of that arc and that Cannonball has a goatee but doesn't have the mustache part of it but does have the parts that go up the sides of his lips towards the <laughs> Well, they make the fun of that in, the, side. in this arc. They, they bring them back to make fun of them a little bit in one of the issues, which is a, a really classy move on uh, Milligan's part. But it is fascinating that I, I'd be... I'm, I was trying to think this afternoon of any other book that's ever pulled a stunt like this. Is there a comic book that has completely abandoned its lineup and stuck with a new lineup completely new? Like, you know, you could say that New Mutants maybe did something similar with the transition into X-Force, but that was a transition. There is no transition here. You wake up on 116 and you're in you're in the early 2000s. We're going to be talking about boy bands. We're going to be talking about reality TV. We're going to be talking about Elian Gonzalez. And all of your heroes might not last for the issue. Yeah. Every issue. Because, guys, here's the trick. Uh, they have a whole new cast in 116, which is the new X-Force, which is You Go Girl, The Anarchist, Dupe, Battering Ram, Gingini, La Nuette, Plasm, Sulk, in Zeitgeist. And by the end of this issue, you go girl anarchist and Duke are the only ones who are still alive. <laughs> so not only do they spend an issue introducing this whole new team, focusing a lot on Zeitgeist, then they just kill them all. Yeah, in very graphic manner too. You know, it's oh, not man. just an off-screen death. The Boys Are Us manis- massacre, as it is known, uh, really is an intestine-exposing experience. So <laughs> we're losing the comics code, and it is violent. And the, now, the good thing about this violence is that it's rendered in loving detail by Mike Allred with colors by his wife, Laura, uh, which makes it so that you can say, oh, man, this is a violent comic but rides the line of comedy just well enough to say, okay, but this is, this is graphic slapstick. This isn't like, I'm not upset by this violence, which is a very fine line to walk. And I think this comic needed to do that because it shows we're taking this stuff. Death is going to be serious here. It's such an, you're right. It's, it's a fine line because he's drawing in this, uh, you know, emulation of the silver age and I think most people knew all red from Madman up to this point, but that was more of a zany. It had horror elements, but it was more of a zany comedy kind of a thing. So it's not that it's completely unexpected, but to see him working on something with this level of gore in certain spots is a really inspired choice. Yeah, this is this is so interesting because it then completely switches the team up. So by the time you mm-hmm. hit one seventeen. You have a whole new team, and they're going to be the kind of core team of this book for the foreseeable future with the Anarchist, the Orphan, uh, Fat, You Go Girl, and Vivisector. And then a couple of people who do die by the end of this arc. X-Force just burn and churn. Whew. Well, and and we're introduced very, very quickly to 
you know, especially through the idea of coach, um, with what the scenario of this team is that they're marketed, that they're supposed to be this, this force of, of, you know, product placement. And it's a reality TV style concept where anybody could be quote unquote voted off the Island at any time. Um, this is happening at a time when survivor is really popular. Reality TV is taking off and taking over the airwaves. It's about as timely a comic as could possibly be produced in this time period. And for the most part, it holds up like part of it's just because I think both of us have such a clear idea of what that time frame was, but also that was a fad that turned into something else. You know, that reality lifestyle uh, that's just exploded into, you know, Instagram and Twitter and always being connected and having, you know, celebrities, quote unquote, who aren't really celebrities or aren't really famous for anything but being famous or being on, you know, this reality thing, it's it's a little bit timeless, which is just so odd for something that is so very 2001. Yeah, and I'm glad you said that because one of the things I was thinking about while I was reading this was I was thinking – and I know this is a little bit odd, but it's key to this story. I was thinking about Elian Gonzalez. And I remember when the Elian Gonzalez controversy happened, when he was seized. Um, and for those of you listening who don't know that story, essentially, um, Elian was a Cuban refugee whose mother died in transporting him to the United States. He was living with family, but his real father was still living in Cuba. And federal agents ended up seizing him in a very famous photo where there's an armed soldier basically pointing like an automatic weapon into a closet at this scared little boy and, and his family member. And they returned him uh, to his father in Cuba. Um, that may have even that event may have influenced the Bush Gore election um, because the way that it was handled by Al Gore disenfranchised a lot of voters in Florida. So it's interesting to me that you say that it's timeless because you would think that a story that involves that kind of a story might be kind of stuck in time. But here we are in 2018 having these conversations about um, immigration policy and, you know, who has the right to stay in our country. These are surprising, you know. It's, it is surprising how these stories are kind of timeless because they've they've kind of seeped into our reality um, in ways that I think are are very uncomfortable. It yeah I I absolutely agree because I mean that's that's what this is. This story came out uh, I think it finally got published about a year after the Elaine Gonzalez stuff. Uh, but yeah, it's it's ripped from the headlines Law and Order style. Uh, but it, it would mm -hmm. be juxtaposed. Because, you know, the general consensus in America at the time is, well, that probably wasn't the best situation. So you have your heroes of X-Force who are playing the roles of the bad guys in that story. And you start to realize, yes. oh, these are some, like, crappy people. <laughs> um, and it's and so I interesting that Milligan can walk the line between these are people doing horrible things but I still like them and I still want to read about them. 
I, I want to spend time with these characters, even though they aren't good people. Um, I think that's another interesting thing about ecstatics. It seems extremely radical, but if you break down some of the basic elements of what's going on in this story, death of main characters, um, violence, uh, the idea of mutant kind being marketed or sold in a certain way. These are actually X-Men themes that we've seen elsewhere in the lineup. It's just that within this context and put in this pop culture format that we're seeing, everything seems much more grave and much more intense in ways that we wouldn't necessarily think about in regular X-Men comics. Yeah. I mean, this is... As as much as Poptopia wants to play with these same themes and misses, X-Force hits a home run with this. Mm-hmm. It's one of the most bold things to happen in comics, but it it's so just excellent in execution. And I wish that we would have a revitalization of X-Force X-Statics in today's day and age because, like Adam was saying – the themes are still super relevant and they've evolved enough that you can tell new stories that touch on this with this same team. Like it's, it's such a cool concept. Yeah. I think even if you were to in true ecstatic style, have a completely new ecstatics lineup, but if you were talking about the similar themes that ecstatics tried to deal with, um, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. And we've talked about that before on the show. Um, I think it would be extraordinarily successful and would be a really interesting exercise in, in 2018. Um, I don't know if anybody wants to take on that challenge, but I think it could be really interesting. It would be great. Now, I think we're we're getting to the point where we're about to rank this, but I do want to just drop one last nugget into this. Yeah. Now, this is going to be uh, spoilers for the movie Deadpool 2, which I think has been out for like two or three weeks. Look, mm-hmm. if you if you don't want to hear it, just like scoot forward a bit. Okay, you good, <laughs> everyone? Is it weird that Deadpool 2 does an X-Force 116? Like, it has Zeitgeist, and it has this whole new, brand new team of X-Force, and then just immediately kills them all off. I, I gotta say... Um... I was excited to see the movie and I think a huge part of why I was excited to see the movie was to see some of that team actually go out and have an adventure. So when that happened in the film, I feel like they lost me a little bit like and I get why they did it. And it is interesting that it is a completely meta X-Force 116 joke uh, to the point where you you mentioned this. What was the detail you mentioned about Zeitgeist in the film? Uh, Zeitgeist has a tattoo that's a road sign that says 116 on his arm. I mean, like that's commitment. They knew exactly what they were doing here. Yeah. Um, which, you know, I think will go over, it went over my head. I missed that completely. And I certainly wasn't thinking about it as I was watching the scene. Um, so you know, I have a little more respect for it afterwards. That being said, I I don't know what it really added to the film. Um, You know, as a whole, I wasn't super in love with Deadpool 2. No, (laughs) Uh, me either. uh, But, uh, you know, it was interesting that they decided to add an ecstatics character with Zeitgeist and actually have him, you know, use his superpower of puking, which I thought was (laughs) a choice. Yeah. 
there's a there's two things that I want to drop on that. One, uh, I think that scene would have landed better from a comedy standpoint and probably sat better with X-Men fans if they didn't have Shatterstar in it because the rest mm. of that team is Jesse Bedlam, who no one cares about. Right. Zeitgeist, who – and this is nugget number two, so I guess sub-nug. Uh, when I saw Zeitgeist was on that team, I said, oh, they're all going to die. Yeah. Yeah, that's like I, – I called it <laughs> just because I was like, oh, I know the context. That's what Zeitgeist does. He has a gross power and he dies immediately. And if you – no one cares about Jesse Bedlam. No one cares about Zeitgeist. Nope. No one cares about the Vanisher. <laughs> who, by the way, the Vanisher, his name is Telford Porter. He teleports. He does not vanish. And I'm going to be a very uh, stuck on that one. Um, but like, I, I honestly feel like if they would have picked any, if they pick a, you know, character who's not been in a ton of comics and has an oddly vocal fan base in Shatterstar, I think that scene probably would have been better received. I agree 100%. Throwing, I mean, we, we're getting deep into spoilers here, but throwing Shatterstar through a helicopter, um, guys, like not the best decision if you want to please X-Men fans. They were specifically mean to Shatterstar. Yes. They really were in a way they weren't to other characters, Yep. which about a year ago, I probably wouldn't have cared about. It is really interesting that they pulled an X-Force 116 in Deadpool 2. And hopefully those of you who haven't seen it fast forwarded through that entire chunk. <laughs> spoilers over if not if not honestly it's just a joke you'll get over it uh where do we want to rank the first arc of x-force uh ecstatics um you know i think it's really solid i think it's a bold choice um i want to be transparent and say that i don't know that i love it you know just from a like a fan point of view but i I respect it. I think it's extremely well done. I love all reds art. Um, I think that when Milligan is really successful with the way in which he's writing this story, like he is, especially in this first arc, I think it works really well. It's dynamic. It's interesting. Um, and it plays upon concepts we don't see elsewhere in the X universe. So I'm, uh, I'm willing to go pretty high here. Um, I'm looking in the twenties. Um, so yeah, it's definitely better than back from the dead, which is at, uh, number 79 right now. Uh, it does a lot of the same things that back from dead does, but way more successfully. Oh yeah. This is way better than that arc that we talked about before. Yeah. Um, the other, all red ecstatics adjacent thing that we have on here is number 19 Wolverine in dupe 17 Wolverine in the X-Men 17, that dupe issue. And I think, uh-huh. I, I think the dupe issue might be a better self-contained thing. If we were only ranking 116, it'd be tough, but I think yeah. pound for pound, that dupe issue is probably better overall. I would agree. Um, I'm actually looking around X Club, um, which we really talked up last week and I I love, but I think this is better than that. X Club so, is good. This is better than X Club. I'll I'll yeah. I'll go to bat for that. I love so X Club. Is it, is it better than the New Mutants Arc of Inferno? That's a tough comparison. So this is an especially tough comparison for me. Because I'm at a position where I really like, I really like 
ecstatics Mm -hmm. and i'm not a huge inferno fan so yeah my gut is saying above but i want to hear from you i'm okay with that i mean i I think we've gone to bat for the inferno new mutants arc because we think it's the best arc of inferno and because we both have affinity for magic storyline and her you know her arc um but i think that this ecstatics, especially the opening arc, is extremely bold, and I think it's better. So I'm in agreement. Okay, that's fine. This can be number twenty. Uh, the new Good. number twenty on our list, the first arc of the ecstatics era of X Force, and I'll come up with a better name by the time I write the episode description. <laughs> and that does it. Good. We've done three. Nice. Ah, yes. So this has been Battle of the Atom. And if you liked this episode, you can go over to patreon.com slash Xavier Files, just like Gabe did, and uh, pitch in some money. And it helps, like, run the show, keeps hosting fees and all that stuff, allows us to uh, get all this stuff that we need for this. Also, uh, most importantly for you, you get to make a whole episode about one of your suggestions. And I can tell you what, our next episode... Someone is using that to their fullest. <laughs> I think we have found the <laughs> limits sure. of requests with the next episode. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, but beyond that, you can go over to XavierFiles.com that has everything about this podcast and the Xavier Files Media Empire. That's uh, where I have different articles, news releases, things of that nature. Uh, you can also follow me on the Twitter at Xavier Files. Oh, and... On YouTube, where for at least a few episodes, we're going to try and see uh, what happens if we throw these podcasts on YouTube. If you don't like listening to podcasts on your phone for whatever reason, you can do it on YouTube. I know there's a market for it because people keep telling me I don't understand it. And frankly, if you're already listening to this through our RSS feed, you've taken a side. So maybe you shouldn't be who I'm advertising to. (laughs) Adam, (laughs) where can people find you online? Guys, you can always follow me on Twitter at Arthur Stacy. And I think by the time this comes up, I'm starting to wrap up the third arc of Bish and Jubes. Um, there is going to be a bit of a hiatus because um, I'm starting to catch up on my page count. So I'm going to leave you with a cliffhanger for a little bit, but I'm not sure exactly when, but it's coming up soon. Cool, 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 cool. Uh, yeah, so like we alluded to, next week... We talk about the loosest definition of a comic book when we go through <laughs> X-Men, Survival Guide to the Mansion, and some others. You know that that book is spiral-bound, Adam? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's our first spiral-bound comic. It, it's probably Sorry. our last spiral-bound comic. Can you think of another? <laughs> I don't I don't think so. I don't think we have any others. Uh, until next time, this has been Battle of the Atom. We hope you survived the experience. Get it!